6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Timothy, chapters 1 and 2. I love what Martin Luther said. God creates out of nothing. Until man is nothing, God can't make nothing of him. I like that. God helps, them who help, God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. God helps those who come to the end of themselves. That's really what Martin Luther is suggesting here. The coming apostasy. In this epistle that Paul writes to Timothy, there is an ominous cloud on the horizon that he's going to talk about. And that cloud is not only on his horizon, it's on our horizon. We want to understand that. Apostasy is not due to ignorance. It is deliberate error and heresy. It is intentional. Apostasy is intentional. What is an apostate? One who knows the truths of the gospel and the doctrines of faith and has repudiated them. In Luke 18, verse 8, and also a couple places in the Old Testament, we get this, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Good question. Willie. There are two departures that we're going to have in focus. The harpazo, the rapture, that's in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the second one is a departure from the faith. Different word, different usage, altogether different. And that's not a popular view today. There are many, many that are committed to a view that the goal of the church is to transform the world by tinkering with its social, political, economic systems. They're called dominionists, kingdom now types. And many, many, many of your most prominent, prominently visible Christian leaders are actually dominionists. They really hold the view that by working hard, the church can change the world. No, it won't change until the king of kings takes it over by force. These vain optimists have no patience with the doleful words of 2 Timothy. You don't see them preaching from 2 Timothy. You'll see why shortly. The present times that you and I live in today would seem to demonstrate the accuracy of Paul. Let's take a look at it then. And uh, so both Paul and Peter seem to emphasize this in their final epistles. Paul here and Peter in 2 Peter, second letter to Peter, by Peter. And uh, so, and it's interesting that in this, the primary antidote for all the things we're going to unveil here shortly is the Word of God. That's his emphasis all the way through here. Let's just jump in. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. The will of God. There's four wills of God. Did you know that? You can define four of them. His sovereign will, the mystery of his will, straight enough, fair enough. His revealed will, not all of his will is revealed, but his revealed will, which is what? The word of God. His will for mankind, that's salvation. Study of that's called soteriology. And the will for the believer, sanctification, that's his will for the believer. So there's four that are defined. Anyway, Paul to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ 
our Lord. Paul regards Timothy as his spiritual son. It's interesting that Paul added mercy to his greeting when he wrote to pastors. When he writes to pastors, he throws, you know, it's grace and peace to you all, but he puts mercy in there if there's pastors involved. Let you think about that one a little bit. See, he knew that pastors have a special need for mercy. Special need for mercy. He continues, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Do you think he was exaggerating or was he literally specific? I think he, was, I think he means what he says and says what he means. He prayed for them without ceasing night and day. Paul spent a lot of time in prayer. We often overlook that. How's your prayer list? Do you have a systematic prayer list? There, are there people on your list that you pray for every day? I hope, I hope most of you can not, honestly nod to that. Do you have a prayer list? Is your pastor on that list? Hope so. I hope you're praying for this ministry. It's a warfare, you know. We covet your prayers. People come up to me at these conferences and things. Chuck, what, what can we do for your ministry? Very simple. Pray for it. They look at me surprised. They think, you know, thought I was going to have my hand out or something. No. Pray for a ministry. Everything else take care of itself. But we do cover your prayers. No one else can pray for us like you can. Your prayers are essential. How about your elected representatives? We always complain. We complain. We have a, a rather vocal cat in our household. And uh, when she comes around the corner, she'll whine. She has a very distinctive whine. And I just comment, don't talk to me. I voted for him too, you know. <laughs> Second Timothy, verse 4. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. What an accolade. What an accolade. Lois, of course, was his grandmother, probably the one that first led him to the Lord, and the uh, first one in the family to be one Christ in any way, and then his mother Eunice. They're the ones that his father wasn't, wasn't a Jewish, he was a Gentile. But we get the impression that the great influence in his life were those two women. Yeah, his father was Greek, and so Eunice apparently had not practiced an Orthodox Jewish faith. That's why Paul had Timothy circumcised. Because so he'd have a ministry to the Jews, not because he needed to be circumcised. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that. So, but they had seen that he, he knew the scriptures. What a, great, what a tremendous background that is. And on his first uh, missionary journey, when he came to Lystra, uh, might have been the time that he formally converted, if you will. On his return on the second journey, he called him into the ministry full time with him. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. So there apparently was a formal occasion where Paul laid hands on Timothy. That's an important step. You don't do that lightly. You do that only if you you're, you're, can do so responsibly, the person you're laying hands on. He made Timothy a partner with him. The word is koinonos, interesting, interestingly enough. How many people do you know in ministry that are actually fleeing accountability? I know people that have started a church really as a way to get away from being accountable. It can be the case. 
For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. What a great verse that is to memorize. Whenever you find something that you're troubled by, terrified, remember 2 Timothy 1.7. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Word fear here actually is, speaks of fearfulness, timidity. Actually, we can construe it as cowardice. It only appears here, by the way. And a sound mind is really uh, an admonishing or calling to a soundness of mind. Moderation, self-control. A disciplined mind is really the thought that's underlying here. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. This whole chapter, chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, can be called the afflictions of the gospel. He's going to talk a lot about being afflicted because of the gospel. And uh, so, a lot of people feel that a call to Christianity is a, it ought to be easy and it's a commitment to our personal lifestyles. No, no, it's a call from, from those personal lifestyles. None of us enjoy suffering, but even as the Lord prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, even Jesus yielded to the ultimate, ultimate suffering. He made it clear that in the world ye shall have tribulation. He's promised us that. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He's not talking about the great tribulation. That's a label of a very specific three and a half year period. No, in general, we shall have persecution. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, he said. So we need to understand that. Many of us are accused by our detractors of being guilty of an eschatological cop-out. See, just because we believe that Christians will not go through that specific segment of time, three-and-a-half-year period, called the Lord himself labeled the Great Tribulation, where do we get the arrogance to assume that we will be spared what most of the body of Christ in most of the world, for most of the last 2,000 years, has had to endure. Not the great tribulation, it's persecution, or tribulation with a small t. Samuel Rutherford said, if we were not strangers here, the hounds of the world would not bark at you. I love this one. I happened to pick this up. I had to throw it in here. This was found in a will, apparently, by an attorney. To my son, I leave the pleasure of earning a living. For 25 years, he thought the pleasure was all mine, but he was mistaken. <laughs> Isn't that a dandy? I love that. I've got to work that in somewhere along the way here. <laughs> First Timothy 1.9, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, when? Think about that for a minute. When were you called? When were you saved? Who hath saved us and called us, right? Before the world began. I'm not contriving this from this verse. It's also in Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundation of the world. That's when he started dealing with you. Wow. How is that possible? See, all along, God had a plan for you personally. I use the word us, a plural, you know, the second person plural here, and that's sort of a mistake. That's the kind of mistake that pervades the NIV, putting the plural in rather than the singular. There are over 3,000 places in the NIV 
that they deliberately changed the singular to a plural because it, it, it eludes responsibility. They admitted that in, their, in, the, front of, in the presses, in the, in the preface. All along, God had a plan for you and for me. Has a different, different impact, doesn't it? I'm glad that happened because it's a good example of where the plural is indefinite. Oh, plan for all of us. That sounds pretty good. Doesn't bind and doesn't pinch anywhere, does it? No, he had a plan for you and for me. Different, isn't it? He alone knows the end from the beginning. God knew before he created the world the mess that you'd make of your life and how he would prevail to fix it. Praise God. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Oh, boy. He abolished death since he has made of none effect death. And he's writing, <laughs> this is interesting. He's writing from prison waiting for them to come down the hall to behead him. And he's encouraging Timothy. I can't get over that. Now again, let me remind you, man cannot be saved by perfect obedience because he's incapable of rendering it. And he cannot be saved with imperfect obedience because God won't accept it. The only solution is John 14, 6, a verse I'm sure you've all memorized, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Who? No man cometh the Father but by him. A very painful but very important truth. Let's continue with Timothy. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. And I love this verse. 1 Timothy 1.12. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I love that. I love that. There are some ministers that say you're saved as long as you abide in Christ. That terrifies me, if they're right. Because if it depends on me, I'm going to mess it up. I'm grateful that I'm caught in his hand and his father's hand. John 10, verse 20, chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Same idea here. For I know whom I believe that, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And I love the little phrase about, you know, if, if, if you can lose your salvation, you've got a new name for God. Butterfingers. <laughs> a little irreverent, but gets the point across. He is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Praise God. It's not what you believe, it's in whom you have relied. Salvation is not about doctrine, it's about a person. Who's that person? Your second guess doesn't count, right? Committed, deposited. See, you and I are his debtors. Hold fast the form of the sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. There again, sound words. Again, it's always the word of God that lurks behind each one of these verses. The verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture. Every word is there by 
supernatural engineering, every, every detail. When a church or other Christian organization goes liberal, it usually starts with the leader's convictions about weakening of that leader's conviction of the Word of God. When a church starts to go liberal, it's because the leader has lost his commitment to the plenary inspiration of God. That good thing which was committed unto the... I might mention something. We have an institute, a think tank. And it has a very simple, minimalistic statement of faith. And, uh, and um, which has what we think are all the essentials, but that's all you need. We get letters from people, gee, we're kind of concerned about this theory or that theory. We have no problem welcoming you. Because our commitment is the Word of God. If your commitment is the Word of God, those things will sort out. It's that simple. And we're not here to, we're not here to teach a particular theological position. We're here to encourage the students to discover their own. How? By sound hermeneutics. Taking that Word of God seriously, that it's pure, it's precise. Anyway, continue. That good thing which was committed unto thee, kept by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. The Christian life can only be lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own strength. If you try to do it, it means you've missed the point. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Philogelus and Hermogenes. He gives the actual names of the people who have been unfaithful to him. I suppose I could do that too, but the list would get too long. Huh? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Now, it says the province of Asia, so you don't get confused, because today is the age, we're in the period of the Asian century, but that's far east. The word Asia here refers to the Roman province of Asia, which really technically we would call Asia Minor, which is the uh, field, that, the area we call Turkey. In biblical terms, it's the districts of Lydia, Mysia, Caria, and Phrygia. And he, on his second ministry journey, he was, uh, it was inappropriate for him. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go there in Acts 16. It wasn't until his third journey that he really gets in there and he spends three years in Ephesus, the capital of Asia, and he evangelized the whole area. So when the Holy Spirit opens the door, that's the time to go. Not before. When he opens it, you move. The seven churches that Jesus writes letters to are all in the province of Asia. Where's the letter? Where's Christ's letter to Jerusalem? Where's his letter to Antioch? No, those aren't in Asia. It's interesting, those, those seven churches were to, ended up typifying the entire history of the church. Moving on, verse 16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me, at some risk to himself, by the way. And the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, that, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Now some do believe that he was, Onesiphorus was arrested and persecuted. Okay, we went to chapter 1, let's go to the uh, second chapter of 2 Timothy. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How do you do that? How do you be strong in the grace? How does one be strong? The answer to that lies in Ephesians 6, where twice, not once, twice, Paul admonishes us to put on the whole armor of God, not just a few of your favorite pieces, the whole armor. And uh, he mentions that twice. And if you think that you can live the Christian life through your own committed strength, 
you're in for a very serious disappointment. Very serious disappointment. Moving on. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So that's his instruction. See, as, as the sons of God, as the new creation in God, you too must be concerned about your father's business. You are now committed to your father's business. Now therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. All of you are in special forces. You're all part of his, his special operations, if you will. And what, he's what Paul's applying to Timothy here is that you can't carry excess baggage. Baggage that might be all right for others, you can't carry because you are to be a warrior. You need to be deadly serious about what you're about. Are you an ambassador for Christ? Are you really serious about being an ambassador for Christ? That's one of the things that Coin Institute's all about is to try to train serious ambassadors. Not train pastors particularly. There's probably a dozen different, more than a dozen different categories of ministry you might be called to. We don't know what it is. We're just there to covenant with you to accomplish that goal that God has called you to. But to do it seriously. To do it seriously. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. Do you believe that? And focus on it. If a man also, uh, and if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Strive here means like contending for a game, committed to winning. Winning, though, by the rules. And Paul frequently uses allusions, athletic allusions, from his familiarity with the Olympic and uh, Isthmian games, which are in, you know, in, the, in the Greek area. The only exercise some Christians get, you want to know what kind of exercise most Christians get? Jumping to conclusions, <laughs> running down their friends, sidestepping responsibility, and pushing their luck. Those are the four primary exercises of most Christians. And I hope you're kidding. I mean, I hope you're laughing. Yeah, okay. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. See, a farmer has to work. If you leave a field to itself, it will produce mostly what? Weeds. And Solomon had this in mind when he wrote about the field of a sluggard, which of course gets overrun. And, and, and A pastor deserves to be supported by his ministry. Okay? We need to understand that. And uh, Paul continues, Consider what I say, the Lord give the understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. The word that is not in the text by the, it was supplied by the translators. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which in Christ Jesus with the eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we, also, we shall also live with him. And there's a number of other, what he calls faithful sayings, labeled such in 1 Timothy and also Titus. He uses that phrase frequently. And it's faith in Jesus Christ that gives us the victory, of course. For if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. I want you to notice there's a very important uh, word in this, uh, in this verse. See, some scholars will point out that not all believers are going to reign with him. So on the basis of this verse, it would appear that only those who have suffered with him, if we suffer with him, we also shall reign with him. 
And that is the key word, if. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. One of the misconceptions that is very prevalent is that everybody is going to end up with the same score on the judgment seat of Christ. We know that from 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're all going to be before, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we're all going to be equal. No, I don't think so. I think behavior, after, after justification, behavior matters. He continues, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So God cannot deny himself and he cannot accept as true one who is false. And that's one reason Jesus gave such a scathing denunciation of the religious leaders of their day. He called them hypocrites because they were pretending to be something they're not. I think it's a very dangerous thing to do for lots of reasons. You and I need to be genuine all the way. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words of no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Strive about word, it, it, the striving about words really means disputing. Disputing. That's one reason I don't believe in debates, by the way. Because of Proverbs 13, then, only by pride cometh contention. Where there's contention, there's pride. And I'm not sure we're, we're here to encourage that. And words to no profit only undermines God's work, and that's several places in Paul's letters. Major on the essentials. Don't major on the minors. I love what my wife has hanging in, her, in the lobby of her ministry, that... Um, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, agape. I think it was attributed to Augustine. I think it's a great, great centerpiece. But this is one of the most important verses, the verse I usually sign when I sign an autograph for whatever reason. I use 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's a pregnant verse. There's a lot there. We could spend a whole hour mining what's implied in that verse. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music